This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, Nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Asall. And you're listening to The Conversation. So I am here in beautiful Wyoming, and it is empty and desolate, and uh, I was just camping at the side of the road because there's no one out here and it doesn't matter i i absolutely love that state it is just it is so pretty it's hard to beat and between the the epic scenery and the epic emptiness yesterday i was driving along and i saw this motorcycle pulled over at the side of the road and there was no one there <laughs> i was like oh Uh-oh. this looks terrible Drove down the road a little further, and there's this sort of disgruntled-looking guy with his leather jacket on, and he flagged me down. Turned out he's an Olympic fencing coach out of New York, and his GPS had told him there was a gas station out in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming, and he'd followed it out there. And, of course, man, there's nothing out there. <laughs> I, I actually never believed that Wyoming existed until I got there because I'd never heard of anybody going to Wyoming. I'd never met anybody from Wyoming. I was pretty sure it was just this big empty space in the middle of the country that cartographers were like, well, shit, how did this happen? I'll just call it Wyoming. That'll do. (laughs) So I was really embarrassed. But Wyoming does, in fact, exist. And you're going to be talking to a state representative in Wyoming, David Miller. Yeah, and he's in Riverton, which is up in the middle of the state. And that's where I'm about to drive to. We heard about David Miller through House Bill 85, which has been christened by the press as the Doomsday Bill. And of course, when it comes to different visions of the future, we've had a lot of people talking about collapse. We just led into this from Joseph Tainter, who gave us a pretty scary vision of collapse. And this is what Wyoming does when the federal government collapses. Right. To the best of my knowledge, there aren't a lot of states looking at that scenario. And that's really what attracted us to David Miller. This seems like a really interesting new idea not a lot interesting and provocative oh absolutely provocative actually i think that's one of the things i'm hoping to get from miller is what was his intent is he actually concerned about this or is this a a media event and if he is really concerned about it i want to know what he thinks the collapse is Mm -hmm. you know where that connects with our last conversation and what we do in the eventuality right I'm also interested in why is this necessary now? I mean, it sounds to me like he believes we live in in one of those moments that we talk about. 
Otherwise, why would you why would you be introducing this right now? So let's see what he says. I'm going to point the car towards Riverton, and here's David Miller. I'm a geologist. It's what I graduated in. Got my first job at a uranium mine operating in Grants, New Mexico, and then was offered a job up here in Riverton, Wyoming, in a building about 100 meters from here. So I moved up here in 1977. It's exploration, uranium exploration, and uranium mining, all three mining methods, open pit and sit to, and also underground mining. I've worked in all three of those environments. Mostly exploration is where my love is, is finding mineral resources and exploring them and making higher values out of them. So you've got this long background in materials and geology, but you're also in the Wyoming State Legislature. And what brought me here is House Bill 85. And can you tell me about that? You know, I got coined by the press as the Doomsday Bill. So it was headline news for the whole entire time it was going through the process. And all the bill did was put together a task force to study Wyoming's response to possible crises that could occur with our federal government continuing on the track that they're on, which is grossly overspending and borrowing gross amounts of money that's not clearly sustainable in our mine here in Wyoming, where we manage our resources well and we balance our budget every year. Do we have to sit back and ride this train off the track with everyone else, or can we think a little bit ahead and try to plan for a little bit and have some contingencies in place? What happens if the dollar loses its value rapidly? Even a a natural disaster situation, maybe Yellowstone starts smoking, or uh, maybe we have a big flood or something like that. Do we rely on government all the time, or do we try to set up this Wyoming-based infrastructure to respond to these things? As you know, with this series, the idea of crisis comes up a lot. Let's put some more flesh on this. What's kind of the worst case scenario where a bill like this, like what's it really responding to? What's the real fear? Well, well, I I told you about the book I'm reading. Uh, You know, it looks at Weimar, Germany. The public sector retirees are devastated. Government workers are devastated because government wages don't go up fast enough to keep up with the inflation that's occurring. And it gets you to thinking, what's the solution to our debt crisis. $16 trillion or so is apparently the official debt. Are we ever going to pay that many off? And I think the answer is no, because of the way the Federal Reserve and the banking system is set up, that you always want to have inflation. And frankly, most people don't take the time to figure out that inflation is the way for those people who set up the system to basically game the system. More and more people are realizing that it's a, a, a rigged game. And right now, it looks like we're in the beginning of the rigged game, kind of coming to its end point, as we see what's happening in Greece, uh, Spain, the whole Euro area. Are we going to see the same thing here? I don't see why not. So on the ground, for like a person in Wyoming, what does the world look like if, if the game's up? Uh, I think Wyoming's a great place to be. We're pretty much self-sufficient. We, we can survive here in Wyoming. We have agriculture base. We have a mineral base. We have natural gas all over the place, coal. But again, there needs to be some sort of governmental unit helping organize these isolated areas if there wasn't a connection with the federal government. You know, I actually don't even think this will happen. These were all what-if scenarios, but we have real things going on at the same time. And it's just not this administration that caused these problems. This has been going on since the Federal Reserve was created. 
So everyone's kind of been in the game. You can look at history, the Greeks and the Romans and everyone. This is what governments always did. They debased their currency to keep the social programs going longer and longer. At some point, everything has to come to a head. Either you denounce your debt or you hyperinflate. Those are the two end games. Which will it be in this country? I don't know the answer to that. It's interesting that you mentioned that. The last guy I spoke to was a historian, and he's written extensively on the collapse of civilizations. Okay. And we talked for a long time about the Western Roman Empire. And when it sort of hits the boundaries and there's no one else to gobble up, it no longer has the energy to support this incredibly complex infrastructure. In the short term, it solves that by devaluing the Roman currency. In the longer term, it solves that by falling apart. Right, right. What, what do you think of the ideas of well, complexity it, and collapse? You know, you, you look at the, the Roman Empire, and how long did it really last? 500, 600, 700 years? It's actually an amazing success story. And you look at our country, you know, we've only been around 200 years, and maybe for 100 years as, as the power that we are. So has it taken 100 years exactly for us to squander that incredible wealth that we built up? I, I, I don't want to say that. But you know, the picture is starting to become clearer. That's the image I have right now. A lot of people I've spoken to really worry that we're at a point where we may collapse. We have finite resources, an economy based on limitless growth, a growing population. Things are so interconnected. If one thing goes, it all goes. You know, I was telling you about Jan Lundberg, who's thinking about energy. And for him, the worry isn't so much that we're going to run out of resources. It's that we'll have a crimp in the supply chain that's long enough to cause social chaos, and then the system falls apart because it's so interrelated. So there are a lot of people who've put really scary ideas of the future forward. Do you think there's any merit to those? Are those things we should be considering at all? You know, of course you can envision what he was thinking about. Our electrical grid in this country is getting somewhat antiquated. It's not keeping up with the times. The ideas from, frankly, the green side, the renewable energy side of having more local sources of energy so you don't have to have these huge infrastructure projects of power lines, things like that, that makes a lot of sense from a, a stability point of view. I don't necessarily agree that it needs to be solar panels and wind turbines. I frankly think nuclear is the cleanest, green, sustainable, dispatchable, and scalable energy out there. But that's a different part of the conversation. Uh, it's, it's a pendulum moving back and forth. And we're on this side now where the sky is falling again. I don't necessarily think the sky has to fall. I think we can come back from the cliff. But how do we do that? I kind of go back to uh, Frederick Baptiste, who wrote a book called The Law. It was written, I believe, in the 1840s, a French guy. And there's lots of profound things in there that he says that basically anytime we pass a new statute, a new law, you're taking from someone and helping someone else, whether it's right or wrong. That's, that's exactly what you're doing. So be very, very careful when you're writing new laws all the time. And I frankly think we have way too many laws that it hampers uh, society. Even here in Riverton, Wyoming, our local farmer's market folks are getting hammered. There's nothing worse than uh, going to a legislative meeting and you have a church group there where the state agriculture department has passed some rules and regs that don't allow them to do bake sales anymore. 
the legislature probably passed some legislation requiring safe food. The rules and regs are made up by a bureaucracy, and they have people out there enforcing it. And so you're empowering these government workers to go out there and impact the private sector in bake sales, lemonade stands. We're impacting all those people. That's not my intent as a legislator. Mm -hmm. Can we go back to what made America successful? Private enterprise, not government determining what works and what doesn't work. Let individuals have a free reign to be able to do things and decide what society is demanding and let them go to produce it. I think we can go back to that. It's not going to be easy because there's a class of people that depend on that Social Security check. Farmers depend on their PILT payments. They give them money not to grow things. I don't think that's what our founding fathers meant for the vision of America. You know, we need some safeguards for people that really can't survive in society, people that may have physical limits in their mind or their body. We need to take care of those people. But the number of people we're taking care of now that are fully intact is, is just outrageous. Society will collapse in that scenario. So that's kind of the worst case scenario. That's the worst case. Well, uh, to me, that's uh, you want to carry it to the absolute extreme. You're looking at Stalinist Russia. Mm -hmm. Why now? We've had a lot of different moments where society has had a really large government. I mean, World War II comes to mind for me. Why is this particular moment a moment where we need to be thinking about that or where we need to be thinking about something like the doomsday bill? I think we've reached a point where the rules and regs are such that private sector companies can't function in this environment anymore. If you live by every rule on the books, you're breaking some law almost on a continuous basis. That's not correct. And, and they're, they're all the best intention laws. They're all for the children. I, I just, uh, when people say it's for the children, uh, that, that'll get me going. Because there's nothing better for children than a healthy home and good jobs for the parents. <laughs> right. Um, so why now? Is this the moment of like, there's so much that it will implode if we don't deal with this? Or is the whole doomsday bill thing just drama? It ended up being just drama at this point. It was a serious note. And I don't know if it really would have done any good. But do the billions of dollars Wyoming has in reserves, do they need to remain in U.S. treasuries, or should they be invested in real assets, gold, silver, or farmland, or coal deposits, or something like that, that aren't going to decrease in value? You know, humans don't live long enough to understand the span of history, so we repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And that seems like a worrisome thing. Yeah. So for you, it seems like the social good is a freer market. Is that a fair... We're going to get more creative people doing more creative things, advancing society faster. One of your last interviews was the gal about the space exploration, and you had one before that on mining other planets. And I just remember thinking when I was uh, 16 years old in 1969, when we landed on the moon, that, wow, you know, that's really something significant. In my lifetime, that to me has to be the most significant thing. Why don't we have colonies on some of these other planets? To me, that's, that's the way mankind survives. If we want to survive into perpetuity, that's the only way is to get out there and explore and get bigger and use our resources we have here to get out there and, and colonize the universe. So there's a sense of, of growth. I, I mean, I mean, I mean into, that's right? a huge, expansive thought. But that's, in my mind, what humankind is capable of doing. 
maybe not in the next 100 years, but we have to keep advancing all the time. We can't go back. I like this thought of holing up somewhere in a small little house with a wood stove and having a forest out my back door and being able to survive off the grid and all that. That's appealing to me too. But is that realistic for 8 billion people? It's not. All those people in China, all those people in Laos, all those people in India, they're all striving to become middle-class people too. And they have that right. And I think they can achieve it by technology and by allowing more free market enterprise. So we don't live in that now, I guess. In some areas we do. Uh, okay. the, the Apple model with all their apps and things like that, I think that's brilliant. And I want to see more of that. But I don't want to just see it in that sector. I want to see it in all sectors. I want to see it in food. Right now, food production in this country is grossly concentrated in, in very few large multinational corporations. I don't think that's a good thing. Mining is the same way. The U.S. companies, Anaconda and Kennecott, used to be the powers of the world back in the 1950s. What happened to all that? Well, it was rules and regulations and lawsuits. We don't consume less of those things. People think we're in this post-industrial age right now, but every one of us in America right now still consumes over 100 pounds of materials per person per day. Uh, the country of Chad, I think, consumes four pounds. Who's better for the environment, the person in Chad or the person in America that consumes 25 times the amount of resources as the person in Chad? Well, if you take a look at the countryside in both of those countries, our countryside's a lot better looking and more environmentally friendly than Chad. What came first? The wealth came first to help us maintain. We have more forests now in this country than we did 100 years ago. A rich society is a good society and a clean society. It's poor societies where resources get devastated, natural resources like the environment. Even though they're being used by the rich societies? Well, I don't know what, what we're getting from Chad that we're using here in the U.S. I don't think a lot. Again, that's another— uh, I mean, Maybe for China or something well, like that, that. That's another, another misconception is that we're out there raping and pillaging the world to s sustain this lifestyle. Uh, and then we're running out of this and we're running out of that. And we're not running out of anything. So is there actually enough—like we know there's a finite planet that we're on, and unless we somehow do get into space to find more resources, you know, we know there's finite stuff, finite— clean water, finite natural resources, be they oil or coal or whatever. Can we bring the whole world up? And this is setting aside the social and economic aspects of distribution. Could we physically bring the whole world up to, say, an American standard of living? Once we create value somewhere so high that we can go to the moon or go to Mars and recover that value from that deposit there to provide society the necessary elements that they need. I, I don't know what, what that is, but again, I view mineral resources as unlimited. and it's Because those, you're thinking it, universe, it, it's though, not No, planet. I'm actually mostly just thinking on Earth. The Earth is so big and has so much mass to it that we're really never going to run out of anything. Did we run out of whale oil? If we'd pushed that system, do you think we would have? No, it, it wasn't sustainable. It was replaced. It wasn't replaced overnight. Oil won't be replaced overnight. Nuclear power won't be replaced overnight. Fusion nuclear power is the end game almost, to basically have unlimited energy. I think the consumption will still peak many times where we're at right now, but the Earth can sustain that. You know, I don't know what the population is going to peak at. Is it going to be 10 billion or 12 billion? But I think over the long term, it would come down from that point and reach some sustainable number. So if we have enough resources to say we can actually carry 
a sustainable population and a high quality of living. Something a lot of people bring up, and this has been a huge divide in the project, between people who are anthropocentric, they're interested in a world in which it's essentially about us, and people who are biocentric. And the biocentric people will point out, and actually some of the anthropocentric people too, will point out that like by exploring and exploiting all of these resources, there are casualties in the natural world. And those are things that have rights of themselves. The anthropocentric people may see those casualties and say, well, maybe those things don't have rights in and of themselves, but they feed back to us. So there are two different sort of arguments, both of which end up saying, well, if we keep exploring and exploiting at our current rate, we're going to kill a lot of other stuff and that'll be bad. Before humans were even on this earth, things were being killed off right and left already. I don't understand where that argument's coming from other than to just try to scare people. Okay, and it's a great argument to scare people that that we're, that people, things are dying off. We don't see monarch butterflies anymore. We don't see frogs anymore. But I still see monarch butterflies and I still see frogs. Again, it's the chicken little syndrome. The sky is falling. We have to do something. But we know there are certain species that we've lost. Oh, yeah, we've lost probably 99.99% of everything that's ever lived. 99.98% were not caused by humans. But okay? it's different when we do it, right? No, I don't see how it's any different. We're, we're a product of this planet. Did other things make other things go extinct in the past? Absolutely. Will something possibly make us go extinct in the future? Possibly. I think it's pretty bold of us to think that we're having that big of an impact. Uh, global warming, global cooling, I put all this stuff in, in the same boat. You know, from yesterday to today, I think it's actually cooler. So are we in global cooling for this one day right now? Well, how about this one week? How about this one century? How about this one millennium? We're either doing one or the other all the time. There's change. That's the fact. We're not going to stay at the status quo. Are we going to lose some species due to human activity? I, I don't see why we wouldn't. I, I would say yes. Have we lost some already? Carrier pigeons, I guess, is an example. Yeah, we, we do impact, just like uh, polar bears impact the seals, just like, uh, I don't know what happened to the woolly mammoths. Did the Indians kill them all off when they came across? I don't know. What's the answer to that? Everything has an impact on everything else. So does that have a value? I, I don't know. I, I can't really answer that question. In a project that asks the big questions about the good, what if you had a shorter, better life? And this is sort of the argument that John Zerzan uh, brings up. For him, he's into the idea of, you know, really small local communities, no technology. And for him, what do you get? Well, you get a much closer relationship with your neighbors. You get much more quality time. You get a relationship with nature itself, with the land, which he feels irrationally that that has value, right? And he was willing to say, you know what? I guess that's a spiritual feeling. And I wonder if you can't say exactly the same about the idea of material progress, right? So on the other end, the second guy I interviewed was a futurist. He's into deep technological change. He's into us genetically engineering ourselves and becoming greater organisms, living forever, trying to extend life. He's so anthropocentric that for him, the only thing that creates value is himself, right? And everyone can do that. And he's very libertarian in a sense, right? He really believes everyone should have their place to kind of find their own thing. He doesn't want to impose on anyone else, but he believes that part of that freedom is for him to evolve beyond that. 
And so it's like there are these really weird poles of thought and value. One is finding it all in himself. One is finding it in some abstract notion of spirituality that says nature is good. Where are we finding value in this conversation? Well, 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 nature is good. I, I enjoy clean air and clean water as much as the most rabid environmental person. I just think we can have the products of society as well as having these things. Progress is a good thing. I'm just simply a realist, and I'm just trying to enjoy life, enjoy family, enjoy friends, and contribute to society as best I can. And I think providing energy, I think providing the metals that society consumes that people have in their, their iPads and their iPods and their iPhones, I think that's an honorable thing to do. What, what, what else would you do? You know, uh, why fight that? Right. Well, that, and that's what I'm really pushing towards here. We just mentioned a few things. Family is good and time you spend with your family is good. So there's a sense there that human relations are good. Uh, there's a sense that a certain level of material wealth is good. Does that lead to the world of this futurist? Is it kind of a slippery slope down there? Like well, when, when I, stuff is good? I don't know. I try not to get into those almost religious issues. Mm-hmm. I try not to mix government and religion right. or, or my professional life with religion. To me, that's another subject. You know, like to me, the environmental movement is a essentially a religious movement. You have to believe that this is going to happen. You have to believe that man-caused global warming is causing all these problems. You know, when you were saying keeping the religious questions separate from corporate or government questions, for me, this project is all about how do those things inform one another. When I talked to the futurist and I said, why do you want to live forever? Why do you want to genetically engineer yourself into becoming a different sort of thing. Those are value things, right? Where do you get that? And he said, I, it's irrational. I, I think that's almost human nature, though, again. I think we're always peddling to go forward. We're trying to climb that hill because the hill's there. And that's where I come from, is just finding another mineral deposit. That's an accomplishment. Provide the minerals that society covets. They want it. They're, they're paying dollars for it. That's what motivates me. So is the good then personal wealth? No, no. It's, uh, it's the journey is the good. An honest journey, doing things that don't harm other people but contribute to society as you're going down this journey. So we've got this idea of the good, which are sort of people in a way who have freedom to do things with their life, to challenge themselves, to find their own sort of fulfillment. There's sort of a counterweight in that we have to think also of collective needs. And it seems like that's the role of the government in this ideal scenario. Because we can't always just be alone, right? I I don't want to take it that far. Uh, We really clearly need some government at some levels. You know, you, you want to say it's for national defense. Well, I'm not even for sure if we didn't have governments, we would have a lot of war problems. It's, it's almost a, uh, a conservative anarchist point of view. So there's a real sense of optimism there, which is something I think is really intriguing, right? That people are capable, one, of actually creating a level playing field and not of gaming it, that that, that world is possible, and that people are good enough to actually live in a world that looks like that. <laughs> you know, I think most people operate in, in that manner, more or less. But there's always that percentage that's out there gaming the system. 
I don't know if the course of our human history is going to change that much because I think we just look at what's happened in the past and is it going to be any different? Uh, I'm scared for that, is that, that we repeat, we repeat, we repeat. Is this a particular moment where we need to be talking about the future? And I'm asking that thinking of the doomsday bill, but also thinking of all the other conversations and the many people I've spoken to have said, this is a really important moment, whether it's for social reasons or economic reasons or environmental reasons. And then there are other people I've talked to who said, you know, the whole premise of this is wrong. This is not a particularly critical moment in history. I don't know if this is a critical point or not. I think in my lifetime, this is the most interesting time I've lived in. Is that critical? It's critical in my lifetime. Of course, I worry for my children and grandchildren. What does the future hold for you? I think we can fix it. I think we have the resiliency to do that. We might be in for some rough times, but we've got to find solutions for that and get back to this engine that creates the wealth that America had in the past, and we need to resurrect that thought process. And to me, the conversation is, in a small way, part of that. So that's a very different voice in the project. I was hoping that we were going to get that sort of voice from him in this project. It's a voice that we just haven't seen yet before. And there were a lot of surprises there. I think the first thing I would like to mention is just something that he said off record, which isn't in the cut at all. But um, David is one of the only interviewees that actually went back and listened to a lot of the other conversations, which is something that I think is just great. And I hope we get more of that in the future because it allowed him to really talk with a much greater depth and knowledge about the other people we've already spoken to. Like he was right on the same page with us. And he mentioned something that I thought was really interesting and was a good reminder for us. He thought that a lot of the interviewees we've spoken to, especially about environmental issues, are treading water in the status quo. And of course, we've chosen all of these thinkers because we consider them to be pushing the limits of common sense on a lot of times to really be questioning ideas of normality. But for him, he sees their ideas as being representative of most people. It's a good reminder for us that, of course, everyone's idea of the status quo is different. Right. What it sort of points out is that the ideas that you are bucking against are always going to seem like the norm. I mean, it's a good point to bring in our own subjectivity, which is one of the nice things that we get to do with this project because we're not journalists, right? That alone is just like a great reminder to have. Yeah. So I think the best place to jump in here is with what originally attracted us to him, the Doomsday Bill. I don't know. I thought that was a it was a pretty big surprise that the Doomsday Bill is not really as uh, radical of an idea as I thought it might have been. I had sort of the feeling of meeting the Wizard of Oz. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'd come in expecting this giant monster of the Doomsday Bill, and then when David started explaining it more and explaining his attitudes about the future, it seemed like the bill was far more extreme than his actual beliefs about the future. I mean, he says it himself. It's a dramatic note of warning that's meant to spark conversation. There's no real idea that I got from him that he thinks we're at a moment of crisis. Clearly, he thinks there's a lot wrong, but he also emphasized that he thinks we're resilient and we'll make it through this. Mm -hmm. Which makes me think, well, a bill that is legitimately responding to a fear of government collapse, that would be the conversation to me. 
But if it's something that's sort of doing that in more of a rhetorical sense to kind of capture people's attention and go, hey, we really disapprove of how things are being run now, that seems more like it's part of our current political back and forth and less part of the conversation with the big uppercase T. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, it seems like if you had to boil it down to sort of one real goal, there was this desire to go back to this golden era of capitalism, right? He's, he's really looking at the past as the model here. Definitely. I found that interesting because he does use arguments from history quite a bit in, in much the same way Joseph Tainter does. That said, I was a little concerned that much of his evidence was influenced by personal experience of the past as opposed to mm. a more empirical... Are you thinking... There are two points that jump to mind for me. Actually, they're both climate change related and species related. The anecdotal about people say we're losing butterflies and frogs, but he's seen them. And also with climate change on a day-to-day -day basis, some days it's warmer, some days it's cooler. Right. That's anecdotal evidence for something in both cases that's well studied. That actually gives us an excellent excuse to talk about something which we talked about before going into the project, but haven't really talked about on air yet. We're not really interested in going after that sort of thing. Like when people are, are using anecdotal evidence as opposed to empirical evidence, we're not going to say call them out on that because that takes us down a path that really prevents us from going at the deeper ideas, which is what we want to be doing. Absolutely, and that's a concern I have in every conversation I record. Flow is really important. Those statistics don't ultimately hamper our goal of trying to portray how people are thinking about the future. And I think that's the same in this conversation with David Miller. His thoughts on climate and climate change are very different than I think the general scientific consensus that we have right now. That's not something I want to get into in a conversation because that ends the conversation. Exactly. On that note, something I, I did appreciate was he was honest that he didn't know. It's always refreshing when people say they don't know things. It seems to be rather rare, doesn't it? It really, really is. Speaking of refreshing, there was another area that I thought he differs from many of the other people we've talked to. He has a very Lockean view of humanity. That was cool, wasn't it? It was great, yeah. There's only so much... Hobbesian awfulness you can take before you just want somebody to say, hey, people are pretty all right sometimes. There's an optimism there. And I don't know if I share it personally, and he would probably say that's because I'm from a big city. <laughs> <laughs> but um, again, I think it's interesting to look back to the past and then espouse a system like that, because I don't think we see anything in the past. And he mentions this as well in the conversation at one point. He seems to be of two minds about it. We do sort of repeat ourselves, and history is sort of a mess. And yet, he still holds out faith in a way that people are good enough that this sort of really minimalist government system can work. Right. Man, I'd be lying if I didn't kind of wish that I felt that optimism about human nature myself. So let's talk about how he relates to other people we've talked to. Optimism is actually a really good connection here because he mentions Ariel Waldman and her idea of progress, which he agrees with. And I think here we see a scientific optimist 
the very character that I think Joseph Tainter is so skeptical of, the belief that technology will make everyone's standards of living better. And there's a real sense that, like, things are going somewhere. There's a strong tie with Max Moore, too. I think the real question here is if scientific and technological progress is always moving us forward, does Miller end up being on a slope towards transhumanism? Which is interesting, because I know he finds the ideas of transhumanism absurd. But is that really the, I mean, in some ways, that seems like the logical endpoint from this idea that technological progress is always moving us forward. And actually, the way that David mentioned, he tries to keep religion and politics and religion and business as separate things. Mm -hmm. And I think if you do that, then you actually kind of give transhumanism carte blanche. If you believe in scientific progress as a good, then I don't think you have a leg to stand on when you criticize transhumanism. And actually, I think this will be something that will be interesting to talk to our next conversation participant about. You'll be talking to Robert Zubrin of the Mars Society down in Denver. Yeah. I think a lot of ideas that David brought up here in terms of scientific positivism, Robert is going to expand upon. He's written about the case for Mars, which is heavily rooted in a tradition of scientific optimism. More recently, he's written a book about environmentalism as an anti-humanistic endeavor. There's a lot going on there, and I think David's going to be a really good bridge between Joseph Tainter and Robert Zubrin. We'll be, we'll be moving from talking about the past with Tainter, and honestly talking a lot about the past with David Miller, into really just talking about the future again. Talking about Mars, talking about energy, probably the future of our world and how we relate to it. As long as we get flying cars, you know, I'm okay with the future. <laughs> so I think we should head into the future right about now. That was Representative David Miller, recorded July 11th, 2012, at his office in Riverton, Wyoming. This is The Conversation. You can find us on Twitter at at Angus Anderson and on the web at findtheconversation.com. So, thanks for listening. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Micah Saul.